Anyway, that's well, I got started on this. Thing. So we're, our th- topic for today is I don't need God. For those of you who weren't here yesterday, there's a sign-up sheet at the back. Uh, if you'd like to get uh, PowerPoint from today, just go ahead and put your name and your email address down there. If you only want to receive the PowerPoint, you can mark that. Uh, what I do is I don't, I don't send out emails very often, except for when I'm on a trip. So I'll be going to Europe in uh, December for a major student conference in, in Germany. And I also am uh, writing, getting some writing projects done. So I'll be sending a lot of little short things that I write. So if you want some of that, just go ahead and put your name and email address down. But if you only want the PowerPoint, say PowerPoint only, and I'll, I'll just uh, send that to you. I want to respect you know, people. You know, don't, people don't want to get uh, stuff in the email that, that they don't normally get. <clears throat> and so I want to honor that. Anytime if you want to get off of it, you can just let me know and I'll, I'll get you off it. The title for today's talk is I Don't Need God, and where I came up with this was I was at an all-Germany Easter conference this last year, and there was a seminar on uh, answering hard questions, and the person who was leading it had a, had a, piece of, a, sh- a sheet of paper like that and wrote down from people who were there questions that they had, had about eight different questions, and then he prioritized them in terms of the three that had the most votes, in terms of the questions they want to have addressed. And interesting to me, Uh, The question which got the most votes, far and away, was how does one respond to somebody who says, I don't need God? And where do you go with that? Is that sort of a conversation stopper? uh, You know, how how do you respond to that? Because most people think, I don't need God. I need family, I need friends, work, you know, those things I need, but I I I don't need God. So I want to, I'm going to deal with sort of the, I don't need God, what lies behind that. If I have to start off, like I did yesterday, turn to someone near you, and uh, have you ever had someone tell you this, I don't need God, or you know people for whom you're quite certain they would say, I don't need God. So one, if you know someone like that, and then two, do you have any idea what lies behind the statement, I don't need God? So turn to someone near you. And do you know anybody who said this or people you are pretty sure would, would say, I don't need God, and what lies behind it? Okay, let me have your attention again. And you could probably keep going for a while. But if I can have your attention up here. No, I don't. I mean, it's, it's good because it gets a few metal juices going. And So what, what were some of the uh, comments or thoughts or... Things that were said? Yeah. So what's going into the crisis? Is a person who makes that statement, are they acknowledging that God does exist? Right. So you can ask the question, a person says, I don't need God. Are you saying that because you think he's not there? Or are you saying, well, even if he is there, I don't need God? And some people say, well, even if he is there, I don't need God. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem as though he does a whole lot. So therefore, even if he is there, I don't need him. But yeah, oftentimes, the presumption is God's not there. That's why they say I don't need God. Other thoughts? Yeah, I've heard them the same thing from the young lady here. Is that if you only go to God if, if you're sick or even if you realize he's there, it's only something that no one else can satisfy when you go to God. Yeah, so if you're in great need... There was a study done in 2005 of the spirituality of high school teenagers, and one of the questions was, do you expect God to do much? And the answer was no. They did ask a question like, if you had a major exam coming up and you were afraid you might fail, would you pray? Yes, I pray. So maybe God will come through in a pinch. <laughs> so the idea is, well, you have some special needs. Or, okay, it won't hurt. I'll, 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 you know, I need some help here. Yeah, so that, that lies behind it. Huh? Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, uh, a couple of years before that, I'd been all German Easter conference and did a seminar. And I started off and had people groups, break groups of three. And I asked them, what do you think are the three biggest barriers or objections people have that keep them from considering the Christian faith? And to my amazement, all, I think, six groups all came up with the same three. They worded it in slightly different ways, but one of them was the evil and suffering one. Another one was science and faith, how that relates together, where it's evolution or science and faith kind of thing. And the third one was the exclusivity of the gospel. You claim to have the truth, and if you don't buy into this truth, then you're missing out on relationship with God, and uh, eternity is in the balance. So 
those are the three, and I think those are pretty universally three huge topics. Yeah, one is the problem of evil and suffering. Why does God allow so much evil and suffering? The other one is how does science and faith relate? Has science sort of show, shown, showed us that has science shown us that God does not exist? And the next one is the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, that the, the, there's only the truth here is here, and anybody claims something different, well, they can't both be true. So the Christian faith is right. And that you need to acknowledge what Jesus has done and that Jesus is, what Jesus has done is the way to salvation. So that is hugely offensive in a very tolerant age these days. But anyway, coming back to any other thoughts on the, what people mean when they say, I don't need God? Yeah, so, so part of the, the, the science is, well, science has told us enormous about the world. And if we really don't know how, why things happen as they do, let's, let's stick with science. Yeah. That will give us the re reliable uh, answers. Interesting enough, they oftentimes hear that people say, well, in the past people believed in God because they didn't know how nature worked. Now that science has explained it, then there's no more reason. But actually, when you look at the Bible, Judaism and the Christian faith, it's not based on explaining how nature works. Now, there are times in the Psalms when it talks about God opening the floodgates, the heaven, and bringing the rains from the clouds. So there is that, that kind of language. But it's never part of core Christian or Jewish theology. We know God is there because of how he's acted in history. So belief in God is not primarily a way to explain natural phenomena, like an animism, <laughs> Uh, within the Judeo-Christian tradition is how God has acted in history. That's what's crucial. And people assume, well, you believe in it simply because you don't know how things work. Now science has displaced it. it is uh, really an incorrect view of what Christians and Jews have believed. I'll come back to the, the science question. Yeah. Yeah, so, so part of it is, is these are the idea, well, the value of religion is that if it helps people become more moral, good people, then that's a good thing. We had a neighbor who is sort of nominally Muslim, Muslim background. And from her perspective, religion is all about helping people be good people. That's what religion is about. First of all, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't, I don't need God. Uh, so I don't need to bring God into the picture. Yes. Yeah, so the self-sufficiency part of it, and part of it wanting autonomy. <laughs> uh, so I don't want God telling me what to do. Uh, I want, th these are things I want to figure out for myself, my own, my own rules. Here. The people who claim there is no God. Ah. Yeah, so you look, you, look at, you look at a variety of statistics, you know, the people who claim to be Christian uh, don't necessarily have that much better statistics in terms of divorce rates and all those kinds of things. And so, well, it looks as though it's not really helping them to become better people. Yeah. It's, it's important to ask a couple questions about that. One is that you're looking at people who actually take their faith seriously or people who are culturally Christian. So a lot of people say, I'm Christian, so that because, well... The default, that's what I am. Uh, so that doesn't become a very good basis. Even if we, even if we did it to people who attend church regularly, 
uh, I suspect it would still be a pretty abysmal results on that. And I think part of the reason for that is that uh, we have a very uh, uh, sort of uh, God just simply wants to make your life better through the message that we give. And it doesn't cost you anything. And uh, therefore, uh, when you're tempted to do something, to actually have the discipline to say no, we're not trained to actually be able to say no to temptations. So we're a very self-indulgent culture, and when we're confronted with something morally, uh, it seems to me that we're not equipping the church to address the fact. Uh, I heard, I only think of one sermon that I've heard on the, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Now, I'm sure there are you know, series on the fruit of the Spirit where self-control gets, and I heard, heard one. And to my disappointment, it really wasn't talking about self-control. <laughs> but it seems to me that, that part of the fruit of the Spirit is that we actually gain the self-control to be able to forego things that we want because it's the right thing to do. And we don't do a very good job within the church of actually building discipline into Christians. Now, it's not works. Uh, Paul says, I pummel my body lest I, you know, not uh, lose. So, no, there's, so there's, there's a variety of things here that contribute to this, to this idea that don't need God. I'll come back to that in a second. Well, there are a couple of other comments here. Yes. Real quick one. Uh-huh. Science hasn't come anywhere near disproving the existence of God. No, it has not. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't even, I mean, just not even first base. Like, yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come back, I'll come back, I'll come back. Uh, I mean, the atheists say, okay, proof in the strong sense, you can't even prove that we're not brains in a vat. It doesn't seem very likely that we're brains in a vat, we're all this, with this, this you know, so is what you could prove in a sort of logical, uh, you know, absolute certainty is pretty small. Uh, so, but there, I think, is a very good case for saying that, uh, that naturalism, the view of the physical world all exist, is false. In fact, I'll make reference to a book, the subtitle of which uh, is uh, why the materialist neo-Darwinian concept of nature is almost certainly false. So the materialist, naturalist, he's he's an atheist himself. Uh, Created a lot of stir amongst atheists. I'll I'll come back to that uh, later on. Three sort of broad categories here of responses. One of the skeptic. I don't need God because he's not there or he can't be known. Uh, then there is the antagonist, person who says, uh, I don't need God because I don't like God, or I don't like doctrines of the Christian faith, or I don't like Christians, or I've had bad experiences. So a whole variety of things that uh, sort of, uh, I don't like that, I don't want that. And then there's the person who's simply content. Oh, I'm doing fine. I've got better things to do with a Sunday morning than listen to boring sermons, you know, or, you know, give money to this, this religious organization. Uh, I don't need God. Uh, I'm a good person. That whole sort of uh, category. I put down a list of some of the responses that I came up with just thinking about. I'm a good person. Talked about that. I have no need for belief in after, life after death. I can actually handle that. Yes, life is, is, is temporary. It'd be nice to live forever, but no, I, I can live with that. Uh, belief in God is an emotional crutch. I don't need it. I have no need for fairy tales. I believe only that for which there is good evidence. Uh, church isn't my thing. I have better things to do. God has never done anything for me. Now, behind that kind of statement, it may be the person actually prayed fervently about something and felt God didn't come through. So it's saying, I don't need God. God didn't help me. I don't need him. <laughs> All right? Uh, I don't want God or anyone else telling me what to do. I believe in something, but I don't want your God. So they're not necessarily complete atheists. I believe in God has done more harm than good. So looking at uh, uh, history and the ways in which religious motivation has caused people to do things which are extraordinarily bad. Let me just say at this point that I think the beliefs that you have about reality itself have a very large influence on our behavior. You don't have Muslims flying planes in the World Trade Center towers committing suicide without strong religious beliefs. And I think people will sometimes do things which are far worse than they would if they didn't have some kind of strong, strong religious or, or ideological belief. But on the other hand, almost all the good things where people have given sacrificially and gone uh, over, you know, just done, done things, uh, hospitals, charities, 
almost all humanitarian kinds of organizations, they're religiously motivated. So the fact of the matter is, religious belief can be a strong motivator. The question is, what values lie behind it? And if you look to Jesus, you actually see there are very good values that lie behind it, and a whitewashed religion is simply being bad because things are done in the name of God, which are bad. That shouldn't be too surprising. Yes? Right, so there are a lot of people who say, I believe in God, but I'm not a church person. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like organized religion. Organized religion is just all this corruption. And, and it's true, there's a lot of hypocrisy. And there's televangelists who you find are you know, very involved in a sexual affair or they're pocketing all this money where they're giving all these pleas. <laughs> and that kind of, a, that, that, that can give you a very negative uh, attitude towards, towards Christians. Uh, I'll skip over that just so I was sort of color coding by the categories. There's some legitimate criticism of the church. When people say, I don't need God, it seems to me a couple things they have in mind is the idea that you're religious as an emotional crutch. And we actually communicate oftentimes. We have lots of stories. The person was a drug addict, their life was in the pits, they got turned around. The person was in prison, uh, they became uh, a Christian. Uh, the person's life was in despair, everything's were going bad, uh, they were uh, cancer, God healed them, sort of out of the pits kind of thing. Well, it's wonderful that God does those kinds of things. But if the image that's being given is you will turn the faith if, in fact, your life is a mess, well, my life isn't a mess. I'm not a drug addict, I don't need, so you're, you're, you're in despair, and out of despair you reach out to God, I don't need that kind of an emotional crutch. The other is that we oftentimes present the gospel as one of emotional benefits. Why should I become a Christian? Well, uh, it's, well you'll, uh, here's uh, some, some things. Well, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be successful? Do you want internal peace? Do you want a happy marriage? Do you want a harmonious family? Do you want to be part of a loving community? Do you want to go to heaven? Of course, <laughs> all these things, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. But oftentimes when we communicate the gospel, we don't talk about cost at all. We just talk about benefits, and the person says, well, I'm not interested in just this, this group of people who are sort of in these just emotional, you know, I'll scratch your, uh, you, you scratch my back, back I'll scratch yours, uh, feel good kind of thing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not into this soupy. Uh, but when you think about it, ask the question, why did the original disciples follow Jesus? Was it an emotional crutch? Was it emotional benefits? Now, there were emotional benefits. I mean, their life was transformed and, and meaningful, but at the same time, they recognized they may well die. Like Jesus said, you'll be hauled before rulers, and, and he said, you can anticipate persecution. That's going to be a, co a cost. So why did the original disciples follow Jesus? It certainly wasn't just for emotional benefits or as the emotional uh, uh, crutch. The, yeah, the background they had was they were looking for a Messiah who would, in fact, overthrow these Roman oppressors, would restore Israel, and not just simply temporarily restore Israel, but restore Israel in a, in a permanent way. Yeah, but we, we, know, we know that in the back of all their minds, is he the Messiah? And I think the, the, the messianic secret, why Jesus doesn't use that term, is that their idea of who the Messiah would be would be a political liberator. Yeah. And Jesus was not being that. So to, to use that term would bring in all the baggage, all the wrong ideas. So basically, Jesus let them sort of ask, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And hence, he, he, he basically teaches them and leads them to a place where they finally say, you are the divine son of God. Now, to start off with that from a Jewish perspective would be blasphemy. I mean, no good Jew could ever hear somebody say, I'm the divine son of God. And, you know, what? Out of here. So it, it took this, the, the, the three years of Jesus' ministry to help them realize who he was. <laughs> yeah, but I think the day they called was the hope that this is the Messiah. 
Okay, so he's, uh, this may be the one who's going to liberate Israel. Uh, and this person who speaks with wisdom from God. Uh, and hence, they were willing to leave their fishing business to follow Jesus. Uh, so they were, get, they were involved in a, in a cause, which was the ultimate good cause. The God, uh, bringing in God's kingdom into this world and we can be on the front of it. Now, part of the motivation was, well, if it happens and we're on the inside, <laughs> so who will sit at your right hand? Who will sit at your left? So there, there, I mean, there, as human beings, there was part of that. But nonetheless, they were, they were engaging it because they were engaged in the cause that it was of ultimate worth. What Jesus says about the cost of discipleship, I, I've, I've done a paper and I'll, I'll send it out uh, after I finish uh, refining it some, on the cost of discipleship and what Jesus says about it. What Jesus says in Luke 14 is as follows. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives two sort of illustrations, a person building a, build, building a tower and doesn't have the resource to complete it, oh, the fool. Or the person who, the king, who has his army coming with, with, uh, with uh, uh, 20,000 and you've got 10,000, oh, better, better range for peace. So Jesus says, count the cost. And then he ends by saying, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, a non-Christian reading that for the first time, I think, would say, what kind of megalomaniac is this Jesus guy? I mean, he's not only calling them to be willing to lay down their lives for a cause, but to lay down their lives for him. Who does he think he is? That, that family, or that, that, that he is to be more important than anyone else, family, whomever. Uh, and from a Christian standpoint, you look at this, well, you know, this is, this is too radical. Now, it is true that Jesus is, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes people would say Jesus is saying this to people who would be his immediate disciples. However, he's not speaking to the core disciples, right? He's speaking to the crowds, people who are thinking about physically following Jesus. Now, some of what's said here has the strength of what it's going to cost if you're going to physically follow me. But at the same time, there's a broader question, what does Jesus require for disciples any time? at that time or today. And what I did was I looked at the passages talk about the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And clearly that question is not what must I do to be physically following you? <laughs> what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says very strong things. So there's really strong statements Jesus makes about the cost of discipleship. Uh, when people ask, what does it cost to be a disciple, to follow Jesus? There's two answers. One is nothing, and the other is everything. <laughs> There's nothing you can pay, nothing you can give, no sort of works you can do that sort of merit the, uh, the entering the kingdom of God. But God wants you. He doesn't want just a set of propositions. But when you actually give yourself to him, you're giving yourself to someone who cares about your well-being. He's not just a taskmaster who sort of views you as be sort of grist of the mill and you can be, you can be used uh, for, for whatever. You know. He really cares about us. So there's this unusual dynamic that Jesus is asking us to give ourselves totally to him. But in doing so, we actually find ourselves. So I think if we pre presented that kind of, if this is what the gospel's about, you would have far fewer people saying, I don't need God. Because they would say, whoa. This is, this is, this is I'm, I'm impressed by what these Christians are willing to do and the sacrifices they're willing to make. And they wouldn't say, I don't need God. They might say, I don't want to pay that kind of cost. <laughs> but they would think about it in, in, a, different, in a different way. Uh, Jesus promised that he would give us life to the full. That's where Jesus talked about himself being the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd over the sheep, and he's uh, given, uh, he's come that he's, his sheep... His followers may have life and have it to the full. But the life that he's promised them is not just a life of comfort and ease. Right? It's a fullness of life, but it's a fullness of life on Jesus' terms. Another question which I sometimes raise to myself, why is it that most churches have considerably more women in the churches than men? 
We can say men are more independent, they're more work-oriented, uh, but I think part of it is that the, the, if, you, if the message that you're giving is become a Christian because you'll have these emotional benefits, men tend to be more action and work-oriented than emotion-oriented. <laughs> they're not in touch with their emotions very well. <laughs> it's a stereotype, but it's, it's a, for most men, they're not, I'm not all that well in touch with my own, my own emotions. And for me, when I was uh, an undergrad, I did my undergrad at Stanford, it was t- during the time of the Jesus movement and also the war in Vietnam. And are you willing to put your life on the line? Well, as Christians, when that came up, we will willing to put our lives on the line. And so what was very attractive at that time about the Christian faith that quite a few people became Christians was that God was calling us to like, put our lives on the line. Just like people say, we need to stand and put our lives on the line. Academics isn't as important as what's happening in the, around, around, around the world at this, this point. And so that invigorated me and many people at that time to say, I want this. And isn't it interesting, my experience, I was around during the Jesus movement, it seemed to me that the Jesus movement had about equal numbers of men and women. Because in the Jesus movement, it was you were, you were willing to be a fool. Uh, you were willing to, to, to die for Christ, and it was, it was, it was radical. Uh, and I think just the, the call that God has called us to, to his mission, if we would focus more on that as we're presenting what God's calling us, rather than sort of bury the cost, thinking you might put people off. Now, actually, the cost is very attractive when you recognize that the cost is worth it. I mean, after all, anything that is worth a great deal is worth a considerable cost. And to hide the cost is actually, to, in some ways, to cheapen the, the, the gospel. Um, yeah, so another problem, uh, legitimate criticism. Yeah, in the military, there's, there's, I, uh, when I give the, the talk about the, the cost, uh, you know, I ask myself, under what circumstances could giving yourself wholeheartedly in this way actually make sense? So I have about six different conditions, which, well, if this were true, if this were true, if this were true, if this were true, then yeah, it would make sense. <laughs> and then I go back and ask, well, what about Jesus? And all of these things actually these fit with, with, uh, with, with Jesus. A uh, problem that we have now is that a lot of people have very negative impressions of the Christian faith, and we've brought that upon ourselves. It's good, I think, that we're anti-abortion. But it's not good that we're not more consistently pro-life. When we care about the child before the child's born, but after the child's born, we don't want to spend money to help care for children where there's not the financial needs within the family. So we tend to be so consistently anti any kind of social welfare uh, many social welfare programs have been bad because it's badly spent money and gets people stuck in a, in a rhythm of poverty. But nonetheless, if, if, if we communicate that we actually care about people and we care about the weak, we care about the homeless, we care about the orphans, we care about the widows, if, if that was clear what we're saying, uh, I, th- I think that would be quite attractive. But as it is, people have the idea that Christians aren't caring people. Now, it's a very strange thing that amongst the general population, Christians are the ones who don't care, in part because they're not voting for the kinds of things that they think caring really amounts to. And uh, I won't get into, I think, politically, sometimes we've sort of, sort of gone on a, sort of a, a track where we go with everything that's sort of on that track rather than going case by case, what's the right thing, thing, thing to do. Um, but, it, but in fact, uh, people have this, this very negative impression of Christians and they don't care. If you actually do studies that look at individuals and what individuals are doing, conservative people, including evangelicals, actually do better than the population as a whole. They give more to charitable organizations, not just the church. They give more blood. They give more time. So actually, Christians individually, I think, are actually considerably above the population as a whole, but you don't see that, and the impression that people have is not that. They don't, they don't see how, how Christians are caring for their neighbors and for people around them. They see politically the sort of positions that, we, that, that we've held to, and, and we, we, I mean, there's a lot of baggage that we have there. Okay, let me go back to the, sort of the three categories. One, what about the person who's content? I'm not open to change. There was a book that came out a number of years ago by two university staff, both of whom were quite uh, effective uh, evangelists, uh, entitled I Once Was Lost. And the basic thesis of the book is that when a person becomes a Christian, there's not just the threshold of becoming a Christian. So I mentioned yesterday yesterday, that there's other things, steps that people need uh, to go across. 
And so they have a total of five thresholds they talk about. Uh, the third one is moving from being closed to change to being open to change. If a person is closed to change, it's really hard to make progress. <laughs> they're content with where they're at. Obviously, becoming a Christian, if they don't think it's a big deal, well, they're not thinking very much about it. <laughs> becoming a Christian ought to be a big deal. Uh, and the question is, well, why would they want to do this? So question, how can we help people uh, begin to see that they really do need change? And that they're not where they should be, and that where they should be is a quite different place. Uh, one suggestion is that I think we should be transparent. I think I mentioned yesterday that if we sort of make it appear as though we have everything together, we have no problems, no struggles, we're, we're all following Jesus' example wonderfully, uh, follow Jesus and you can do it too, people won't relate to us. But if we're authentic with the struggles that we have, other people will share about their struggles. So a person who said, I'm doing fine, in response to the question, if you got to know them and you started sharing struggles that you're having, they would likely start sharing some struggles that they're having. And it may well be that they're not quite as fine as they made out to be. Uh, all of us struggle in ways, in, in, in various ways. And when a person can become more honest about that, so they can become more honest with us and get to know them better, and there creates a greater openness to the gospel. And if they can look at us and say, I like things in you that I don't like in me, uh, or I like things I see in Christians, uh, they're drawn towards that and they have a higher goal. Even such things as occasionally I'll in conversation with a non-Christian say how I don't like my inclination towards sarcasm. If you go away to a big university, smart people love being sarcastic. Uh, and sarcasm is fun. You know, put downs. And being, you know, that's just, it's fun to do. But it doesn't, it's, it's like mud in my life. It's, it's, not, it's not making my life better. It's, it's, it's just it's dirt in there. And I don't want that. I, don't, I, I have this tendency <laughs> to be sarcastic. Uh, but at the same time, I don't like the results of it. And likely, my non-Christian friend will say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, sarcasm is fun. Movies are, you know, movies have these sh sharp put-downs. They're kind of, you know, all right, yes, yes. We love that on, on the big screen. <laughs> but actually, the sort of putting down other people down uh, is, is, is not making me the kind of person I want to be. And sharing those kinds of things, the person can say, oh, hmm, maybe you've got a point there. And so it's not just simply what God wants us to be, but also recognizing the degree of our own self-centeredness, uh, which, is, which, is, which is major. When a person becomes a Christian, it's not just going for goods, it's repenting of a life that we have and the self-centeredness and the rebellion that we have against God and how that affects our relationships. So being transparent is important. Encouraging them to look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see somebody who is quite a bit above where we are. If you compare yourself to other people, I'm, I'm as good as you are. We're, we're, but you compare yourself to Jesus, you realize, oh, and I'm quite a bit behind what Jesus was calling us to. Even when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, whoa, who could possibly do that? <laughs> so Jesus sets a standard, which is a high standard. And if they're attracted towards Jesus, uh, obviously they're being attracted towards the, the Christian faith. What about those who dislike Christianity? Uh, I listed a variety of things I talked about before. Well, uh, I didn't talk about faith views as being against reason, the doctrine of hell. I had a... I was in a debate in Helsinki three years ago, and about three days after the debate, I got together with a person I debated over coffee. And I asked him the question I suggested yesterday is a good question I asked. Do you wish the Christian faith were true? He said, well, it depends on sort of the brand of Christianity one's talking about. If one's talking about your, your, your liberal uh, Lutheran, uh, um, uh, <coughs> Finnish Lutheran uh, Christianity, uh, yeah, that'd be fine. He's added, but if it's the kind of Christianity that believes in hell, I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> so he actually took about 20 minutes talking about the doctrine of hell, which I think was quite helpful for him. Um, but uh, there's, there's things that, that are very much uh, people don't dislike about uh, Christianity, and you need to be able to address some of, some of those issues. Sexuality is a huge one. My wife's twin brother is, is homosexual. 
And one point in the far distant past, he considered himself to be a Christian. Does not he's really pretty anti-Christian. He sort of leans towards Buddhism uh, these days. Um, so uh, there's just a, a variety of things that, that, that can be reasons of, of, of dislike. Uh, thinking about the skeptic, uh, well, there are a couple of things that I think are important inroads to sort of help break them away a bit from their, their skepticism. One is the reality of conscious mental states and persons. Say science is able to explain everything. But if you ask from a scientific standpoint, what is the feeling of pain? A scientist can tell you what neurons are doing. They can tell you how muscles are contracting. They can tell you how people are speaking, how they're acting. They can talk about pain behavior. But what is this feeling of pain? Is it simply neurons firing in a particular way? And if you're convinced there's nothing but the physical world, then if there's, if there's any reality to the feeling of pain, it has to be analyzable into physical events. But it simply doesn't seem to be analyzable into physical events. Uh, let me insert here, I'll come continue with that. Francis Crick, here's a, uh, a quote from him. You, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of ner nerve cells and their associated molecules. Who you are is nothing but a pack of neurons. Now, maybe there are some non-Christians who could say, yeah, that's right, I agree. <laughs> but it seems to me that if you agree with that, that's an awfully disheartening view of, of human beings and who I am. I'm just neurons firing. <laughs> you know, I, no, I, I really, I, I, I am somebody, I, I exist. But, so what does one do with that? So even from a non-Christian standpoint, this sort of this, this implication of a pure physicalism is not very attractive. So I mentioned uh, uh, Thomas Nagel, the atheist professor, wrote Mind and Cosmos by uh, Oxford University Press in 2012 with the subtitle, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. And most atheists I know are convinced that religion is obviously false because we know we live in a purely physical world. Everything boils down to physics. And here you have a prominent atheist saying that worldview is almost certainly false. Now, he is a naturalist in the sense that he thinks there's nothing beyond nature, but he thinks the mind has to somehow fit into our view of nature itself. And science tries to explain everything in terms of atoms, mass, and energy, those kind of categories. And he says that is not an accurate view of the world in which we live. It simply does not account for mind and consciousness. Let me see if I had a... Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, he wrote, a, wrote an article uh, called, What is it like to be a bat? So if you remember this illustration of a bat, it may help you with a basic idea here. Uh, bats fly around in a pitch black cave, and they don't bump into each other, and they're able to grab on the ceiling. And the way in which they do that, if they have a sensory mode that we don't have, they have eyes, but they can't see anything, so it's not a visual sensation. They make these chirping sounds, and the sounds bounce off the walls of the cave and come back to the bat, and uh, the bat is oriented by that and is, is able to avoid flying in other bats. And Thomas Nagel's assumption is that for bats, there is some kind of experience they have of their environment. So he assumes they're not just automatons flying around, but they actually have some kind of a spatial awareness. But it's a spatial awareness not through vision, but it's through echolocation. So the question is, what is it like to be a bat? What kind of experience are they having? Now, if you assume they do have some kind of experience of their environment, and you assume that we can't get at it simply maybe by analogy, visual and spatial, but you can't know what it's like to be a bat. Then he says, suppose you knew everything you could possibly know about a bat and its environment by all the physical facts. Suppose you know exactly what happened when the sound waves came, came back, the kind of neural network that, was, was, that took place, how the results in the bat flying in ways which don't fly in other bats. If you knew all the physical facts, would you then know what it's like to be a bat? And I think most atheists, at least their initial response would be, no, you wouldn't know what it's like to be a bat. 
Now, some of them are so convinced that everything has to boil down to physics, they say, yes, you would. <laughs> it's a little bit hard getting around those people. But even most atheists would say, you know, there really is something as like to be a bat. That the feeling, and they said, likewise, the feeling of pain is not just pain behavior. There really is something when I feel pain. It's not just you know, my muscles contracting, all that kind of thing. But there really is something to it, which means that the worldview of naturalism, of physicalism, is false. It may have lots of things right, and able to describe lots of what's going on, but in terms of what's out there, it's not the last word, which means you need to go back to the drawing board and say, what is the world around us actually like? Even what is the natural world like? Is it just straight physics? And is, is it, what is there beyond that? Thomas Nagel uh, thinks that there is a, uh, a, a natural teleology, he calls it. He doesn't want to say there are persons in nature at all. But he says that nature orients towards goals. But how can anything be oriented towards a goal if it doesn't have a concept of a goal? <laughs> it seems to me the very idea of goals, not just simply physical causation, but actually being goal-oriented, it requires that there's some awareness of what the options are and choosing amongst them. It makes much more sense to me that if there's something like mind within nature, there's something like mind behind nature that gave rise to it. But this kind of argument is one which it breaks down some of the barriers that people have saying, I know that the Christian faith is wrong. How do I know? Because science tells us we live in a purely physical world. Oh, does it really? What about the arguments Thomas Nagel gives? Uh, the person thinks about that, oh, okay, it's not just we don't know the, the details of it. I was in a debate in Helsinki on a different occasion with a psychology prof, and he was, uh, uh, it was on the topic of what is a person? And he said, well, we don't understand how conscious works right now, but as we understood the brain better, we would finally understand how it works. Well, it seems to me the best you could possibly have would be to know consciousness arises exactly and only when this kind of pattern of neural events takes place. And when that happens, you have a sensation. But how is it that neurons firing into your way could give rise to a sensation? <laughs> there's, a, there's a category gap between neurons firing a particular pattern and my having a sensation of pain or a feeling of love or whatever the sensation may be. So it seemed to me that, no, it's, the problem is not just we don't have the scientific facts, but even if you had all the scientific facts, there would still be a gap between that and what we actually know to be true. So what atheists do is they either say we don't have experiences. We think we have feelings, but we don't actually have feelings. That's just an illusion. Uh, but there are also atheists who say we actually do, uh, and this, the experiences aren't reducible down to the physical events. But rather, when you have something like the brain functioning as it does, you have a feeling of pain arises, or you have mental experiences arise. Now, that is a, a position which I think most atheists would find quite attractive. Yes, I do have these experiences, I can't deny it, but there's nothing there but the brain. But when the brain is functioning in a particular way, it gives rise to mental properties, to these experiences. The problem with that, let me see if I get to it. Uh, uh, well, the, I'll, I'll come back. The problem with that is that if, in fact, there's nothing but there but the physics, the brain itself, and if all causation is the level of physics, the next state of affairs is, is caused by the physical state of affairs just before that. So even if it's true that the brain at one point has a feeling of pain, the fact that it has a feeling of pain is not going to influence the next state of the brain. That's going to be influenced by the mass and energy of the brain. The fact that you happen to have this feeling doesn't influence the next state of the brain, even if it's there. So it seems as though even if, even if Thomas Nagel, even, even, if, if, even if one is right, not Thomas Nagel, but uh, uh, John Searle was an atheist at the University of California, Berkeley, and he had this idea of emergent properties. But if simply an emergent property, how does that emergent property influence the next state of the brain? There's no mass and energy to it. It's just a property that arises uh, out of this, the, this system. So it doesn't have any causal power to it. What that means is that the feeling of pain actually has no survival value, survival value. So it's very strange to think that humans and animals, dogs, cats, um, I don't know how far down you go where there's still an experience of pain, but it seems pretty obvious that pain has survival value. But if it's not causally doing anything, no, it doesn't actually have any survival value. It's the physical states underlying it which have the survival value. 
Thomas Nagel argues that surely they have survival value, and if they do have survival value, then it has to enter into the metaphysics of what's actually there. It can't simply be an emergent property. So for me, in dealing with people who think science explains everything, looking at this helps sort of help, it creates a distance there. Which, okay, that's not the last word. So it opens them up to other possibilities. Another big issue is that of free will. And by free will, I don't mean that you can do anything that you want. I think most of us don't have much free will. When it comes about what I do, I think my, my state, prior state of my brain and other things basically dictate what I'm going to do. But there are situations where I'm balanced between two things. And I can go one way or the other way. Uh, and it seems to me that it's very important that I actually have some influence in the course of my life. Because if physicalism is true, or naturalism is true, then everything that I believe, every, every thought I have and every choice I make is dictated by the prior physical state of my brain and who I am. And that state was dictated by the state before, the state before, the state before. So even though I have this life of the mind, it's not actually influencing the course of events in my life. I actually have no influence whatsoever on the thoughts that I have. I think I do, but I don't actually. I'm just, I'm just carried along by the, the physical course of events. And for most atheists, that's rather disconcerting because an implication would be that if their atheism is simply driven by their brain, they would say, well, your theism, your belief in God is driven by your brain. Okay, so what, what, gives you, what puts you in a better position than me? And when it comes to high-level ideas, there's really no logical, objective way of being able to say, you're right and you're wrong. One person will say, well, I just feel I'm right. Or, I just feel this is the right position. And the Christian will say, well, I feel this is the right position. But for the atheist, he's undercut his own ability to be able to think he's right, because after all, his feeling that is right is simply dictated by the prior states of his brain. Now, why should you put any confidence in that? So it undercuts the confidence that atheism have in naturalism when they say that we're just persons and there really is no free will at all. I was invited to speak to a group, an atheist student group at the University of California, Santa Cruz here. And there was a grad student who was actually grew up Mormon, left, the, left that, became an atheist. And he was kind of an advisor to the group. There were, there were seven undergrads and then the grad student. And I asked them how many of them believed they had free will. The grad student said he didn't think he had free will. And one of the other undergrads said they didn't, they said they didn't think they had free will. The rest of them said they do. In fact, there's the irony that many atheist groups call themselves free thinkers the Free Thinkers Association or group. But in fact, if you're an atheist, there is no free thinking at all. Your position eliminates the possibility of free thought. So you have this, this, this great irony related to it. <clears throat> Moral right and wrong is also a significant motivator. There are lots of people who don't believe in God who do care about moral right and wrong. And part of what's interesting about that is one of the most important elements in human happiness is believing that your life was meaningful. Not just simply meaningful for your family, but meaningful in the broader sense, that you've, your, your life was, was lived in a way that contributed to the greater good. But to believe in a greater good means you actually have to believe that there are certain things which are right and which are wrong. It's not just, I'm contributing to how human beings tend to be wired, and what's the great satisfaction of that? You actually have to believe that what you're, what you're doing and the values you're standing for are the right ones. If you don't have that, you may seek pleasures, but that's not going to give you a very satisfying life. So if you think about happiness, not just in emotional ups and downs, but a deep sense of satisfaction with your life, one of the most important elements of that is believing that your life basically has been lived in the right way. But for the atheist, how do you, how, how do you establish this belief in a right way? And hence you have the irony that if atheism is true, that's bad news for the atheist's happiness. Because believing in atheism undercuts your own prospects for happiness if, in fact, you actually believe it. Now, you may sort of live in one world where you have all these beliefs and the other world within which you're an atheist, but that's like the Christian who has a world over here. And so they're, they're really no different. They're sort of living in two different worlds where you bring those two together and their atheism is going to have an adverse effect on their own personal happiness. Uh, so Bertrand Russell was very much anti-Vietnam War. And he was asked one time, well, why, why as an atheist do you care so much about you know, Vietnam and what's happening there? And as I recall, his response was, oh, I'd, rather, I'd rather be right than to be rational. 
Strange thing for somebody who's a prominent philosopher. I think he was being rational, but nonetheless, he said, I, 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 I'm not in a position to be able to justify what I'm doing, but nonetheless, I'm not going to let go of it. But when people actually recognize that, that, that right and wrong are things which are crucial to who they are as persons, uh, and they recognize that the worldview doesn't hold that, doesn't give a foundation for it, that provides significant motivation. So oftentimes, say in a talk like, like what is a person, you ought to hope that naturalism, materialism is false. Because if it's true, it's got negative consequences for you. It's got negative consequences for society. After all, society will only function well if a majority of people adhere to a common core set of values. If they don't, that creates so bad news for society as well as bad news for yourself. Again, it doesn't prove the Christian faith is true, but nonetheless, it uh, uh, is, can open up people to that. Um, there's a, my wife was looking on the internet in 2012, and there's a CNN uh, piece that came up called Prominent Atheist Blogger Becomes Catholic a woman named Leah Labresco. And this was her, obviously her last blog on this atheist blog site because to declare you're no longer an atheist on a blog site, you're no longer qualified to be able to contribute to that blog site. But she gave her last blog site when she declared she'd, she'd converted to becoming Catholic. Uh, and in the, in the article, uh, she's reported as having said, I believe that the moral law wasn't just a platonic truth, right and wrong, written out there in the cosmos in some way. Uh, I actually believed it was some kind of person as well as truth. And thinking about what that might be, the, the, the option which, which stood out greatest in her mind was the Christian faith, that the Christian belief about God is the kind of person that can lie behind moral truth. And her conviction that there really is moral right and wrong was more deep-seated to her than her previous scientism within which uh, uh, God simply do doesn't exist. I'll say a couple things about the harmony of science and biblical faith. I'm watching the time here as well. Uh, I, I have an article which I'll I'm actually can send to you shortly entitled The Order of Nature, Order of Nature Miracles versus Specific Point Miracles. They're expressions that I've made up because I think it helps in trying to understand how science and faith re relate to each other. The success of science, uh, no, go back here. The success of science gives us at least some reason for thinking there may be no order of nature miracles. Order of nature miracles are miracles that God does simply to sustain the natural order around us. Um, uh, an example, I heard once heard a preacher say that science has been unable to explain cellular differentiation. So you start off with generic stem cells, and there's a cluster of them, but at some point, a stem cell divides, and becoming two more stem cells become, say, two muscle cells or two nerve cells. We have a nerve cell that divides, and becoming nerve cells like the parent cell, they become different from that. Well, it's crucial that in the development of a human being that you not only have uh, half a trillion neurons in your brain by the time you're finally done, but they have to be the right kind of nerve cells in the right place. So someone have these long axons, so your brain has to be wired in a way which is going to function. Well, how does that work? Well, his contention was the science isn't able to explain that. If, in fact, God is, is sort of manually flipping the genes, turning them on and off so the cells become the right kind of cells, the right place at the right time, that would be an order of nature miracle. But it seems to me that God has created an exquisitely ordered world where at no point does he need to do miracles simply to sustain the natural order around us. The success of science gives us significant reason to think there may be no order of nature miracles. But that's not give us reason to believe there are no specific point miracles, namely miracles that God does at a specific point for a specific purpose. And if you look at the miracles in the Bible, all the sort of recorded miracles in the Bible, with the possible exception of creation itself, which is sort of a different category, are specific point miracles. They're not done for things which are needed to sustain the world around us. So think about the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, what does science have to say about that? Well, even if science was able to track from the moment of conception to birth and not see any point where there has to be, uh, there's a gap where you have some miracle taking place. Now, I think human personhood, consciousness, that whole is a different question there. But from a physical standpoint, you might understand this is how human development works from conception to birth. But that wouldn't tell you that the virgin birth of Jesus couldn't take place. All it would tell you is, naturally speaking, it doesn't take place. If it took place, it would take a miracle. All right. All right, science doesn't tell us whether a miracle would ever take place. Science tells us how the order of nature around us works. Now, when I send that to you, there's a, a set of some objections which I respond to. 
But, but don't be intimidated by the success of science, being able to explain all these things. Because the success of science doesn't tell us that God doesn't do miracles. It says there's good reason to think there are any order of nature miracles in terms of sustaining the world around us. But it doesn't tell us that God doesn't do specific point miracles for specific purposes. That's something you have to investigate historically. Now, some case reports of miracles have consequences that you can use science to apply. But most of them are not. And you simply have to do historical study to find out what actually happened. And when you do that, say with the resurrection of Jesus, uh, you find there's actually a very good case for saying Jesus rose from the dead. When I give this talk on the resurrection of Jesus, I actually like to give two talks. One is the historical case, and the next talk I uh, entitled, But Dead Men Don't Rise. So no matter how good your case may be, that can't be the right answer because dead people stay dead. I mean, the dead dead, not just in icy water, but dead dead, they stay dead. <clears throat> so it cannot be the case that, that Jesus wrote, rose from the dead. Um, but I said, okay, we know that physically speaking, but this would be a specific point in miracle. And science doesn't tell us that, that doesn't happen, so we have to ask, uh, do we have reason to believe that that, that that has taken place? Then there are experiences that we have which is a lot of where you know, this rubber meets the road, what, what your experience is like. When you talk about your own experiences, experiencing God, uh, people will oftentimes be drawn to that or have experience of themselves. I mentioned yesterday an uh, uh, atheist or a person who was an agnostic who eventually became a Christian. I, we, we connect, I connected with him through a, a mutual friend. Uh, when he, he finally became a Christian, he says he had been going to church the last couple Sundays. So he went to a Catholic church there in town. And he told me that the, the priest was reading from the Gospels. And he said, as he was reading, it struck, to me, it struck me that God was speaking to me. Now, there wasn't some big dramatic experience. It's not as though, well, how could you possibly explain that? For him, what he needed was the subjective assurance that God was actually there. I think before that, it was sort of, well, is he there, is he not, could believe, could not believe, you know, sort of back and forth. But what he needed was an assurance that God's actually reaching out to him. And a person asked, well, if, I'm, if, well, if I pray, will God demonstrate he's there to me? I said, what are you asking for? Are you asking God's going to do some dramatic miracle? He's done dramatic miracles for other people, but why should you think he has to do it for you? Uh, he could do that, but I don't think he would. But I think what you can do is you can ask, if you're really seriously seeking after him, to have God show himself in some personal way that makes sense to you. Uh, and I think that kind of prayer is a prayer which God honors. So a person who's praying, God, show yourself to me, and they're not looking for some dramatic miracle, but rather some, some personal experience within which God's reaching out to me, God honors that. And for most of us who are Christians, we've had experiences like that, which are very important to us in our own faith. And it's important when we're talking about our faith to acknowledge those things and encourage them to continue looking. So experience is important. Philosophically speaking, it's not the key thing because, after all, people have experiences as Buddhists and others, and they say, well, I know Buddhism is true because I had this experience. Well, you need more than just that. But nonetheless, we do have all these things to go on. My time is gone. Let me maybe one question, and then we'll, we'll close and head off towards lunch or pick up kids. I've covered a lot, sorry. <laughs> yes? It seems that among your discussions around your uh, gravitating to at least represent Christ as being faith-based, but not sensible. Like, there's a lot of people that just will not jump into the path of God, that you don't have to look at it as right or wrong. It's just a sensible. So is there... Yeah, you don't have to be a Christian to be a kind, caring person, and perhaps even sometimes be rather sacrificial. There are situations where I find, say, a non-Christian who is making sacrifices that are really quite extraordinary to me. So, for instance, instead of just speaking about the homeless, if a person regularly goes and serves homeless people, one of the difficult things about that is homeless people typically don't appreciate it. <laughs> they don't say, oh, thank you so much, you're so kind. I mean, some would. But basically, you're giving yourself in ways where you don't get the kudos back. Uh, what motivates you to do that? Uh, now, the devil certainly doesn't motivate them to do that. The devil doesn't have any good within them to be able to motivate a person to do that. 
when they're acting in ways which go beyond what seem like just sort of natural human responses, uh, it seems to make sense to me that actually the Spirit of God can be at work in that person's life. They recognize what is right, and I think the Spirit is actually helping them move in that direction. Jesus says, I said yesterday, if you respond to truth, more truth will be given. If you see moral truth and you're responding to it, I think actually the Holy Spirit can be helping you respond to that. So the idea that the Holy Spirit only works with, only, only works with Christians, no. The Holy Spirit is at work in lives of non-Christians, bringing them towards the faith. And when they see something which is true, I think the Holy Spirit can actually work in their lives. So there are cases where you know, a person might say, well, human beings can make these dramatic sort of sacrifices. And, but it seems to me that when people are doing things that are, are just beyond what would people normally do, uh, to, to, to forgive someone who murdered a family member of yours. That's not a natural human response. Uh, so th- those kinds of things, I think, are things which, which, which come from beyond ourselves. And when we recognize how difficult it is to change, a self-change program isn't going to change me. <laughs> I mean, it may make a little bit of progress, but I really need God's help. And interesting enough, the biggest change that typically takes place in people's lives are when they come to the end of the rope and say, I can't do it. It's in their despair, I've lo- I just can't do it all. That's where the greatest change typically takes place. And I think God's meeting us in our own weakness and brokenness and changing us. But if we're coming to the Christian faith, well, I will try harder, I will be a good person, I will do all these things that God- Christ is calling me to do, and I'm trying to do it on my own steam. Well, I may make a little bit headway, uh, but nonetheless, it really has to be God working within us in a recognition that it's his help that we need. And when a non-Christian sees something in their own life, which seems like an insuperable barrier, they can call out to God and say, God, help me. And people sometimes can recognize, I've been trying and trying, and I just, I, I, need, I need something beyond myself. And for me, able to say, God is there, and I will stand with you in this, but turn to him. He's the one that really can turn your life around. And again, it's not, you know, huge changes. Just growing as a Christian is a gradual process. But nonetheless, we need God's help and not just our own human initiative and the things that we can muster up on ourselves. Well, thank you very much. Uh, by the way, if you, if you put your name and your email address down there, I'll send you the PowerPoint. Uh, so glad to keep in touch, and thanks for coming.